Blog Talk Radio. Carol the Coach. Sex, love, and relationships. We talk about it here. Carol the Coach. Compassion with contemporary relevance. I am a psychotherapist. I can be your personal life coach and I can help you with your issues. There are no problems too small or too big. You can talk about anything. Speaker, columnist, radio TV host, and commentator. Carol the Coach brings messages of wellness and empowerment within reach of everyday people every day. Almost five years ago, I lost my soulmate in an accident. He was killed in a plane crash. Life just for me has seemed to stop. There are groups all over the city. I mean, I teach one. It is a specific way to start thinking so that you shift how you see the world, which then shifts your energy, and then you feel better and you actually see things differently. Carol the Coach, always available to at carolthecoach.com. Now, I've got Russell on the line. I'm 47 years old. I'm a truck driver. I am married. I have a wife in San Francisco. Okay. I haven't been home in six months. My thing is, I, I don't know if I have a sex addiction or what the problem is. Why do I want what I can't have? And as soon as I can have it, I don't want it anymore. You're right on target when you say, I don't know if I have a sexual addiction. Well, guess what? Yes, you do. And you know what? That's my specialty, Russell. So you're at the right place. Continue. I meet women online and, and I'm in a different part of the country. I, I travel all 48 states, so I love sex. I hear self-esteem issues. You never felt good enough and you didn't feel like you were getting what you should have then and you're re- Reenacting that now. Do you want to change that about yourself? I got an interesting email from a client that actually said, Hey, Carol, I just wanted you to know that after all the hard work and after having moved away, my husband and I are doing really well. And in part, that's because you taught him empathy. Now, we all know that empathy is a very, very important part of relational recovery. So I was glad to get that email. You know, it's interesting. I've been doing this show since 2007. And what I know to be true is that we have evolved in so many ways. I think... No, I know that couples work wasn't even available. That's amazing. So now there are so many different talented professionals that you can work with. And empathy is really the key to teaching him how to put himself in other people's shoes, but especially his partner. Now, That being said, if you're somebody who is not in a relationship, you more than likely have to work on compassionate responses to yourself. You see, sex addiction is not compassionate. Sex addiction is mutilating. And if you're by yourself or in partnership, matters not, When you make the choice to do sexual addiction, when you give in to compulsive, problematic sexual behaviors, you are showing yourself a form of self-loathing. And it's time to change the trajectory 
of that story. I can feel that my mic is just not high enough. I'm going to try to move it, and I hope it's not sending you lots of reverb. Um, It is so important for you to practice compassionate self-care, right? Now, how do you do that? Well, in my new book, Help Them Heal, I teach you that to be able to practice self-compassion, what you have to do is follow um, a path to self-intimacy that Darren Ford, uh, who runs a mindfulness course, talks about. And that is, in actuality, where you know you want to love yourself more. You know you want to like who you are and what you're doing. So you have to awaken or awaken to the emotional experiences that you are encountering. And you have to do that based on how it affects you and, of course, how it affects others and identify what those emotions are. And then when those emotions come up, you've got to give them a voice. You've got to say, okay, what mind states do I experience as a result of these stories? You know, does it make me feel clingy? If I think about giving up my addiction, am I going to cling to that and say, I cannot let go of my best friend? I just know that I can't do it. It, it, I can't fathom being without my compulsive problematic sexual behavior. Are you going to go into adversiveness and say, you know, I don't believe that I deserve love, and I find that that is not congruent with who I believe that I deserve to be, and therefore I'm going to reject it. I'm going to avoid it. I'm going to push it away. So you decide the mind state, and then, of course, the mind stories. You know, that's the part about I don't deserve or I'm not worthy or it'll never work or I can't live without it. So you identify those mind states and stories. And then here's the tough part. But but as somebody who struggles with compulsive problematic sexual behavior, you really want to implement a mindfulness technique, right? And so you say mindfulness, what does that mean? Well, you want to you want to spend some time just sitting in the distress. If you're if you're feeling like your heart is fluttering because you can't imagine giving it up, you're clinging to the addiction, then you just want to breathe through it. And you want to say to yourself, it's okay that I have these feelings right now. These are normal and natural feelings and I'm going to breathe through them. Because perhaps if I do, I will be better able to experience a calmness, a serenity, and get this word, equanimity. Equanimity means that you just really are neutral about the whole experience. It just becomes a choice availability to you, and 
You're just good with it. So you practice some sort of mindfulness to improve the distress tolerance. And I remember Patrick Karn saying to me and to the group, now that I think about it, you just imagine a hand moving the distress away. And you say to yourself, this too shall pass. Okay, so when you say that to yourself, this too shall pass. And if I've got any partners out there, I want you to be imagining that you could be doing this for yourself. As a matter of fact, if you're on your walk and it's five days after the podcast, I want you to rewind this so that you can practice this for you. Um, Because then after you do some mindfulness around the distress tolerance, then you move into constructive compassion. And, you know, I I had this experience. I'll share it with you. It was a Thursday night, and one of my IRCAM professionals said, Carol, somebody just called my home number and wanted to work with me as as an early recovery couples therapist. And I asked them, where did you get my number? And they said the IRCAM directory. Okay. Well, in in actuality, (laughs) it's up to my professionals to have changed that about the IRCAM directory. But I immediately, as being a representative and founder of IRCAM, felt horrible. And I thought, oh, my goodness, now here's why I even felt worse. We can change that on the directory, and that information hasn't really gotten out yet. Um, I was kind of happy to think that somebody got on that directory and was looking for IRCAM. Because remember, that's my new early recovery couples empathy model. But we've started publishing books with that directory. And all of a sudden, my heart starts to palpitate. I feel like I'm going to get sick to my stomach. And I'm thinking not only about my colleague, whose whose home number could have been um, published in a book that I think is going to reach the masses, but I wonder, I trained over 70 people. How many other people may have had that same experience? So here's what I do. I go into action mode in commando-like fashion. I'm like looking and, and trying to ascertain where are their practices, all 72 of them. Where are their practices? Are these all in conjunction? I'm writing emails to everybody, you know. I need to know your office number and your phone number. You need to get this back to me. And I'm, I'm, I'm like doing all this stuff. And then I said, you know what? I need to practice distress tolerance, just like you folks. Whether you're a partner, whether you're somebody who suffers from compulsive sexual problematic behavior, I need to take some deep breaths. It is what it is. We'll do the best we can to fix it. 
it's not going to be the end of the world. And I need to breathe through it. And I need to imagine, instead of the worst possible scenarios, I need to imagine the best. But before I do, I'm going to sit with my heart palpitations and my upset stomach and my overzealous responsibility for everybody and everything. This is an issue I suffer from. And I just need to breathe. And then I decided I had done enough. It was almost midnight. It was time to go to bed. And we would figure it out in the morning. And, you know, it it turned out well. There was only one other person that had major issues. We can always black out their names in the book because we've only published 60. We were supposed to publish 1,000. But a very wise professional said, Let's just do 50 a week. This was the first week it was printing. Somehow there were 60 that eked out. But they didn't go anywhere. They're in a, in a warehouse. And we're going to get the changes made, and it's all good. And then that meant that I had to have compassion for myself. I had to appreciate the fact that I really do care about the outcome uh, for my professionals, for you all. I want you all to have the right answers, right? And that I'm really doing a good job. And when you do a good job, there are going to be some problems. And that's how I want you to feel about your recovery. If you're on the right track and you're doing the right things and something comes up, something comes up that throws you back, causes a slip, causes you to go into, I'm thinking about partners now, that hypervigilant state, just give yourself an opportunity to sit in the distress and be tolerant for it, practice some self-compassion, and then ask yourself how you can relate in a non-reactive way. Like I said, I'm going to go to bed. And then what will happen is that this equanimous relationship to yourself will occur and you'll realize that in the bigger picture of things, you can get back on track and everything's going to be okay. Life is all about functioning in a way that gets you through things, right? And It's all about how we view ourselves, and that's why I'm so excited to have Bill Herring on. You know, this is a man who I've known for many years, and you all know I train at AppSats, and I actually asked Bill if I could use um, his framework for categorizing chronically problematic sexual behavior because I felt it was so good, it was so destigmatizing, it was so forward-thinking, And it looked at, okay, I know he's going to tell me this is a dirty word, but it looked at sex addiction from a different perspective, a much more helpful perspective. And so I asked him if he would come on the show and share with you his framework, his philosophies, and his beliefs on how we can actually do a better job uh, as professionals about psychoeducating you all and your families and the community and professionals at large 
as to how to look at this condition so that we can all um, work within the community and not assign labels. So Bill Herring, welcome to Sex Health with Carol the Coach. Thank you, Carol. It's such a delight to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Well, you got it. I, you know, you have, I've, I've been singing your praises for a long time, and I just want to tell our listening audience that Bill has been um, in this field for how many years, Bill? It's uh, 30 years. It's, it's, yeah, you turned around and, and, and 30 years have passed. So nice. <laughs> it doesn't feel like it, but when I add up, I add up the months, that's what it's been. Right, and Bill has been acclaimed in our community. Uh, for many mm. years, he's been a board member for something called SASH, which is the Society for mm. the Advancement of Sexual Health. So its nickname is SASH, and he's published mm-hmm. many professional articles. And, and in actuality, he's gotten many accolades for that. Uh, he's going to talk to you about an article that he just did called, well, not just did, but a framework for categorizing chronically problematic sexual behavior. And I was there in, uh, that was St. Louis, wasn't it, Bill, when you got the Carnes Award? Absolutely. Right right, right before the times changed, <laughs> the, the last uh, conference right. before, uh, before COVID happened in St. Louis. That's correct. Yeah, so, I mean, he is acclaimed by our professional um, associations all around the world. And so, Bill, today I was really interested in our um, our community hearing about mm-hmm. the, the framework that you use that destigmatizes this condition and hopefully can be used forward-thinking with our community at large. So tell us a little bit about problematic sexual behavior mm-hmm. framework that you put together to help folks to um, understand sexual behavior. Sure, great. I'd absolutely be glad to talk about this, Carol, and want to say I appreciate your, excuse me, your, your support uh, over the years. It just means a great deal to me. I have just always been about wanting to increase access uh, for assistance to people who needed help for their sexual behavior. As you know, there are so many people who struggle in so many different levels with certain aspects of the way that they behave sexually that cause all kinds of pain uh, for them and for the people you know, around them, you know, again, as you know. And as a certified sex addiction therapist myself, I have come over the years to notice how many times that a client came in because their life was just just devastated by what they had been doing sexually uh, secretively and and um, and in many ways as so often happens for 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 years if not decades but even with that extent of behavior it hasn't always been clear to the person that the what they were dealing with was truly an addiction and sometimes even I over the years wondered, well, this person, they work very well within the sex addiction framework. They're, 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 getting, they're getting help and benefit from it. And even regarding that, the, the, the sex addiction framework might not be as uh, fitting for the person as, as another reason for why a person does 
why they do. And I'll come right down to it, that there's addiction on the one side and there's just flat-out lack of integrity on the other. And as you know, people who, have, who struggle with addiction, inevitably we're going to have hits to their integrity. It's going to degrade uh, as the addiction increases. And it, it, it could not escape my awareness that there are people who just seem to be integrity deficit or deficient without necessarily having the addictive piece to it. In other words, they were doing what they were doing more or less because they could get away with it, more or less because they could, not necessarily because they did not have the ability to stop. They just never cared to. Now, obviously, there's a lot of overlap between, uh, uh, the, between these two populations, but I would see people who would come in and more or less pigeonhole themselves into the, the addiction paradigm in some ways because there weren't any other paradigms for them to fit into. Where were they going to go? And so I became very sensitized over the years to the reality that there are all sorts of reasons why people engage in behavior that, that harms themselves and others, and that we need as, as wide of an of a open highway for all the people, for all of the reasons, to get as much help as they can without necessarily making people jump through too many hoops. As you know, for some people, uh, that, that, that hoop of loss of control is hard for some people to acknowledge. And, and oftentimes, again, as you know, that can start off with a whole lot of resistance at the very beginning for a person even to want to look in some sort of objective way at their behavior just because they had already decided that, well, addiction was not the word that was going to work for them, whether it, whether it uh, whatever anybody else would say. So automatically, right at the beginning, there's often this, I don't want to say, you know, almost power struggle where a person has to be convinced that what they're dealing with falls under this category. Well, my thought is, well, what if there were, weren't particularly categories that, that were labeled? What if there were categories that were just described? And so in that way, people could just look at each category and decide for themselves, are they, uh, is, is the description of this behavior one that fits for them or one that doesn't? So all of this, this was, this was a multi-year process. In some ways, I would say maybe a, a, a decade in trying to just, just iron some of these ideas out. But ultimately, I came to the to the. Uh, understanding that that what seemed to make sense is that to call behavior problematic is 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 the first way to have to get a person's attention is your behavior a problem and the person can say well yes it is a problem well let's look at how so i came up with five different categories and it's not just for me i borrowed from other research and and uh, the people who've done this writing in the sexual health field. And it seemed evident to me that there's a, only a limited number of, of categories of what we can consider to be problematic. And I'll go right into them. The first is if, if a person violates their commitments, whatever else can be said about that behavior, it's problematic. You cannot have your sexual behavior violate your promises or violate your commitments without whatever else you're going to say about it, that's a problem. Okay, that's the first. The second one is violation of values, that when a person is acting in a way sexually that's going against their core values, that's a problem. Whatever else can be said about that. The third category is, is the category where, where we look at uh, where, where sex addiction would fit, which is diminished self-control. 
If a person is not in full control of their behavior, whatever else you can say about it, that's a problem. Oh, and by the way, I heard you just, I would like to come back around to this if we have time in a bit to talk about uh, the word sex addiction. Sometimes people misinterpret this framework to thinking that it is somehow contrary to to sex addiction or, or is a either or, and it's actually not. It's by calling it a framework, it is so, the goal is to be so comprehensive that models such as sex addiction fit within this larger framework. And by its very nature, sex addiction is a violation of self-control, and that's the third of the five categories of this, of this model. I'll go ahead and continue. The, the fourth of the five categories that would determine if a person's sexual behavior is problematic is that they are repeatedly having negative consequences as a result of, of that behavior. Because I was considering there could be some circumstances in, with, in which a person's behavior was not necessarily violating a commitment. Maybe they weren't in a relationship that they were breaking a commitment. And maybe it wasn't violating their value system. Maybe they were okay with what they're doing. And, and maybe they would even claim or it could be shown that they were not out of control. And yet it continues to result in negative consequences over and over. That, by its very nature, is a problem. So kind of problem is as problem does. It's almost a catch-all area. And then the fifth category, which I think is so important, introduces a larger social dimension, a, 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 a protection dimension that comes from the, the, the field and the writings of sexual health, which says that no matter what else you could say about a person's sexual behavior, if it violates core principles of sexual responsibility or, or even social responsibility, then that is inherently problematic. And just to drill down into that, just one step further, the, the dimensions of sexual responsibility are, are threefold. And it simply means that, that everybody consents to what's happening. Nobody's being exploited by what's happening. And everybody's being protected against negative, negative consequences because of that. So you put all these together, and they really come down to five core categories. You could almost say them in, 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 in one word, commitments, values, control, consequences, and responsibility. And each one of those is open to a lot of discussion between anybody, not just a, a, a therapist and a client, but even any two individuals can sit and in a very conversational way start to come down to some conclusions about which, if any, or all of these categories is problematic for, for any individual person. And I'll close out. I, I know I'm going a, probably a little long with this, but once I get started, I just want to say it all out in one, one, one fell swoop. What this means is that two people may engage in the very same behavior, and for one person, it would be problematic, and for another person, it would not be, depending on how it, it, it lines up with those five categories. So this became, in, in, in my mind, a very neutral way, a gentle way, without engendering any resistance to have clients start to look at their behavior in light of these five categories. So I'll, I'll, I'll stop with that as the, that's sort of the basic uh, overview right there. Yeah, and that's excellent. So give me the cheat sheet bullets again, and they were, um, and you, you have them listed, but it's commitment, sure. it's value. Hmm. What are they? Control, that would, mm -hmm. uh, control consequences, that's just, you know, how things are turning out uh -huh. and responsibility 
And to make it to make it even uh, think easier, because my goal with this was to really make something that could be very simple, uh, uh, very uh, very portable. Sometimes I call it a, a utility knife uh, or a utility tool that can open up uh, uh, all sorts of different conversations that otherwise couldn't be opened up. So I came up to five questions. That, that speak to each of these categories. And, and, and again, when you hear them, you think, oh, these are just questions that, two people, that people can have with each other. One is, are you keeping your promises? Okay, it's pretty, it's pretty clear. Mm-hmm. Either person is or isn't. So engaging in that in-depth conversation, well, let's go into that. The second one is, is the question is simply, are you okay with what you're doing? And some people will be more or less okay with what they're doing. So by the time, obviously, they're coming for help, they're generally not okay with what they're doing. And this gives us an opportunity to start to go into a real conversational uh, uh, question of, well, what is it that you don't like about what you're doing? What values is this going up against? Um, And I will stop there to say with these first two um, uh, questions, are you keeping your promises and are you okay with what you're doing, that both of them can lead to the reality that even though these may be expressed in, in the sexual behavior as being against their commitments or against their values, the solution doesn't necessarily have to be a sexual solution. Uh, it is possible that if a person's behavior is problematic because it's conflicting with their commitments, they either need to change their sexual behavior or they need to change their commitments. And the same with values. You know, a lot of times, obviously, we think that, well, values are they're lifelong, they're what we have, but on reflection, I think it's, it's reasonable to say that for many of us, different values change and grow and evolve over the years. And if a person's sexual behavior is conflicting with their values, they have the right to determine do they want to change their behavior or do they want to change their values? You know, a, a, a key example to that is, 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 is when people uh, uh, come in complaining of their, their, uh, their unwanted uh, uh, same-sex behavior. And if I was to ask, well, what is the, you know, what's problematic about that? And we can go into whether or not it's violating a commitment. But in terms of violating the value, as I know that you have worked with, there's there's different roads that people traverse. You know, some of them, they they many people, they address their behavior to line up with their values, so they're no longer going against what they believe. And there are other people who take a different road and may come to the realization that perhaps they're 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 actually not heterosexual. And so, therefore, they're, 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 and as they go through that coming out process with themselves, their own values may change, and their behavior becomes less problematic in that area. So all of that came from those first two yeah. questions. Are you, uh, are you keeping your promises, and, and uh, are you okay with what you're doing? Uh, shall I go on? Yes, please do. Yeah, great. Sorry, since I couldn't see you, and I, I know I can I, – I, can, I, can, I just want to make sure that I'm not uh, – you know, bowling over a, a potential question. The third question is simply, are, are, are you in control? Are you in control of what you're doing? And, of course, this can be subjective and people can go into their denial and so forth. But just in a, in a, in a, in a just basic question, it's not saying, are you addicted? But are you really in control of yourself? And then we can have detailed conversations about that. Let me just finish the fourth. And fifth. The fourth question is simply, is, is everything okay? That addresses the negative consequences aspect. How are things going? Is everything okay? No, it's not. I'm having this problem in that. Okay. It's problematic in that dimension. Or a person may say, well, you know, everything's going pretty well. Well, in that category, it's not problematic. 
And the fifth question is, are you protecting everybody? Are you being responsible? A couple of different ways to say it. I just like, you know, are you being responsible? Because that means whatever you're doing, are you getting everybody's consent? Are you getting, are you making sure that everybody's going to be healthy? Are you exploiting anybody from some inherent power imbalance? You know, if it is, then whatever else you could say about that behavior, it could not be, it could not be violating against your values. It may not be out of your self-control, but if it's harming other people, by its very nature, it's problematic. So when you put these five questions together, what I found helpful in my practice is that it provides a very nuanced understanding from the very beginning of what makes this particular pattern of behavior problematic for this particular person in this particular circumstance. And some of the, some of the questions, they're, they're either they're, they're like a light switch. You're, you're either keeping your promises or you're not. Some are more like a dimmer switch on that light switch. Well, I'm really not okay with what I'm, not I'm doing, or maybe I'm just, I'm, I'm just not fully comfortable. So in other words, it doesn't necessarily have to mean just on or off. So the client or the person gets to make their own determination about to what degree is that, uh, is that a problem for them. So all of this is designed to bypass resistance from the beginning that generally happens when we introduce labels too quickly. I find that many clients or people I'm working with, once they've had these conversations and they start to look somewhat uh, dispassionately back at their own behavior, it allows them to come to the conclusion themselves. I have a problem and I really think it's addiction. Or I really think it's not so much addiction, but it's no less problematic just because an addiction might not be there. It's, going to, it's not going to ruin any less lives just because a person is acting upon entitlement or a lack of integrity. So in, in this way, this framework bypasses the necessity of diminished control to be what I would call the – I used to call it the gatekeeper symptom. If a person didn't present with, with a loss of self-control, they couldn't access care for sex addiction because by its nature, sex addiction needs loss of control. This is a way of opening up the – sort of opening up the, the more doorways so that people can seek help even if uh, loss of control is not necessarily the primary variable of, of, of what's driving their behavior. So how's all that? And again, you know, I titled this podcast "Destigmatizing Sex Addiction" with a new framework, and mm-hmm. this is now a that we are presenting to organizations that apps for one that now hears mm-hmm. about this. And so yes. it's kind of interesting because there's this new um, oh, what do I want to say? It's a new philosophy mm-hmm. that. Problematic sexual behavior is deception, and it's a deception integrity mm-hmm. disorder. And Absolutely. As, as I've been listening to this, I agree with it, mm-hmm. and yet it just feels so harsh. I, I know that, you know, Patrick Carnes would say, it may be the addict being in denial. And then you've got other people mm-hmm. saying this is a deception integrity issue. And then we've got Bill Herring saying, I'm not going to call it anything. I am just going to ask you, are you keeping your promises? Are you okay with what you're doing? Are you in control? Is everything okay? Are you being mm-hmm. responsible? Which is mm-hmm. likely to stigmatize the behavior so that somebody can really look at it without the normal shame that they go into. Right? Exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Mm-hmm. I, it was, 
I remember a number of years ago, gosh, I bet it's been maybe a decade ago when the phrase problematic sexual behavior started to be uh, used a little bit more often. And I noticed that for several years, people were using the phrase, but nobody quite could agree what it meant. Uh, that in many uh-huh. ways, it seemed like it was just a, a euphemism for sex addiction without saying the word sex addiction, which is like, well, that doesn't quite make sense. I, since I bridged the, 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 the span between the sex addiction community and the sex therapy community, I recognize that people outside of the sex addiction model and community oftentimes look very askance at that language for, you know, for all those reasons at the different conversation there. But that the, the phrase problematic sexual behavior started to be used, but in a way that was so vague, it was hard to really know what people were talking about. And that really was, was, was probably at the, at the most fundamental level what I wanted to do with this framework, which, which is to just finally set some criteria of what do we mean when we say that the behavior is problematic. And so – one of the benefits, I hope, from this framework is that it provides a, a commonality of, of, of language between different professional communities so that the, the sex addiction and the non-sex addiction therapy crowds could have a common language to talk about uh, the, how to give a person the, the, the best help, the best assistance possible so that they could really live there and in the language of, 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 of – uh, of, of sexual health, to live their sexual health vision, to live their, their, their vision of how they would live sexually healthy, which if you turn these questions around would be a, a person is being living in a sexually healthy manner when their sexual behavior is consistent with their commitments, when it's consistent with their values, when it's within their self-control, when they're not having negative consequences, and when they're protecting other people. And, and in that way of looking at it, there are so many different variations of how that can work itself out in each individual's life, which is, again, where two people could live very different ways sexually. And for them, even though their sexual behaviors may be very different from each other, they are all, all living within those five categories. So that speaks to the universality of this framework, that, that I wanted it to be universal, that Despite what a person's uh, specific uh, personal or cultural uh, uh, beliefs or biases might be or preferences, and, and really, if you look anywhere, I wanted this to be where anybody on earth could look at their behavior with these five categories and make a determination of how healthy or how problematic is it for them. And with that, as I, as I started out a while ago, trying to meet the goal of expanding the range of services to an ever wider number of people who need them and haven't had a way to access them up to now. Absolutely. And I do not mean to infer that mm-hmm. I know about patients that have um, any kind of issues with sex addiction or problematic mm-hmm. compulsive sexual behavior, but I do know that um, an organization that I really admire, ASEC, the uh, Mm -hmm. American Association of Sex Educators, Counselors, and Therapists, they Mm -hmm. were very, very not to pathologize any behavior that's sexual. And so they have been very strong and very verbal about not calling 
problematic sexual behavior, sex addiction, and even yes. has gone so far as to question anybody that might. And again, this is oh, I, oh, I know. <laughs> utmost. Uh, Go ahead. I respect them so much, and um, yeah. and certainly I have seen CSATs, um, CCPSs, mm-hmm. which is that's mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Uh, sex educators and therapists all be the same person. So somehow some people yes. are yeah. able to recognize the not wanting to pathologize any kind of sexual behavior. Um, mm-hmm. But but framework, you can have your foot in in sex addiction with certified sex addiction therapists, and you can have yes. your framework in sex. And be respectful for both, right? That's that's the goal. That is the absolute mm-hmm. goal. And I can understand and absolutely respect that. You know, the sex, as you know, the sex therapy uh, uh, profession was 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 built on defending a person's sexual freedoms and liberties, and so many people were constricted about their sexual behavior and choices for so many years. And sex therapists have done such a wonderful job of bringing people out from underneath those stigmas and, 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 and all of the shame that can get caught up in the sexuality. And because of that tendency, there, there may be a likelihood to look somewhat suspiciously at any formulation that might look at a person's sexual behavior and say, well, this is – this is not okay. So I think it is the that level of sex therapist that needs to be really clear that there's no uh, hidden bias that's coming through where maybe the therapist value system is being imposed upon the client's value system. This, these five uh, questions are all about the client's value system. They're not about the therapist value system. And so hopefully with that, the shame gets bypassed and we can just right get down to the question of what's the best level of services to help this person that's suffering in this way. So, and to do that in a well, non-theoretical I, way. Yeah, go ahead, please. Yeah, I, I so appreciate that. And there are so many benefits to your approach, um, this new mm. framework that's really, what do you say, mm-hmm. is it about four years old now? Mm-hmm. I think the the, the first article – Came out in in 2017, and it's um, and, you know, although in my head it's, it feels like it's decades old. Uh, when it when it finally got out into the world, that was in that was in 2017. That's right. And so, just out of curiosity, Bill, you are a CSAC, correct? Mm-hmm. Oh yes, since since 2002. And, and so, the beautiful thing about being a CSAC is that mm-hmm. we're also allowed to name and claim it what we think would be most beneficial to the client. And so mm-hmm. do you still recognize the CSAT? Because obviously you got the sex addiction in that that acronym. Mm-hmm. Certified Addiction Therapist. Sure. Well, I am a, I've, I've, I've often considered myself to be somewhat of a gadfly in my profession. I feel like that, that, mm-hmm. that somehow it's in my nature that uh, in so many of my writings and then the uh, posts in the professional community, I always seem to be about challenging, helping my colleagues and myself to challenge the limitations of our own paradigms. 
you know, uh-huh. uh, sex addiction, which I, you know, fully, strongly believe in, in the, 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 the in, in sex addiction as a as a reality. I'm just, it just, it, I, 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 I don't, know, I don't want to say I laugh, but it's just horribly sad when I hear other colleagues who say, "Oh, I don't believe in sex addiction." Oh my goodness, I, I can't even go there. It's just, it just, it's it just, I get heartbroken when I think of the people who come, who maybe come to someone who through their own bias has says, well, well, I don't believe in this, therefore it doesn't exist. But, um, but having said all of that, as you know, sex addiction did not – it was a, a set of theories that were not formulated in, initially in what we can now call the sexual health community. It was initially the language of, 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 of recovery and, and, uh, and, and has served so admirably uh, in sort of dragging and dropping the entire – methodology that comes from 12-step recovery fits so so beautifully in in the sexual uh, arena that uh, that those concepts are they're they're form-fitting this concept of of sex addiction and since it is a different language of, of what is sort of commonly called sexual health language which speaks to the uh the prevention of harm and the promotion of public uh, or of personal uh, satisfaction I think that is one of the reasons that there's been a bit of a disconnect between the maybe the traditional sex therapist who who uh, would would have suspicion of, of of sex addiction and the sex addiction therapist that would uh, you know would see it so obviously. So in short, I, I can say that in in a in a in a, in a, in a shorter way. I, I wanted this framework, and it seems to be holding. To, uh, to, to be both informed by sexual health principles, uh, but in a way that, that's, that's really, you know, just, again, conversational. I, I wanted somebody with no education, with no training, just somebody that you could talk with about these questions, and they could say, yeah, that makes sense to me. And, again, I think the way to do it that has seemed most effective is to get away from the labeling. Just, land, just go with descriptions. <laughs> I will, I'll even laughingly say, Carol, I have debated like this framework that I'm talking about doesn't really have a title to it because to put a title to it puts, puts a label to it. And so my, my commitment to having, it, to having this entire process be descriptive means that when people ask me what this is, I, oh, I say, oh, well, this is a framework that categorizes different forms of problematic sexual behavior, but it doesn't have a catchy title like the PSB framework, which I've seen people try to call it, or the herring model or the something that's got some title to it. Because once you put a title to something, it sort of becomes concrete. But as long as you just keep descriptions going, uh, there's, there's just more flow, and then there, it's almost a more of an alive uh, organic uh, uh, process. So I'm, I'm all about descriptions all the way. Um, let me see what else do I want to say. Uh, it's outcome neutral. Uh, I, I, I think I might have said this earlier. In, in other words, it's the, this framework does not say, well, at the, end, at the end of this treatment or care or assistance, this is what your life is going to look like. Because, again, maybe it's going to prompt sexual changes, and maybe it's going to prompt lifestyle changes. So the, the framework itself is very theory neutral. It's very outcome neutral. It is really sort of just looking at the bricks and mortar of, 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 of what, what are the component aspects of our treatment, which is, again, the commitments, the values, the self-control, the consequences, and the responsibility. And then – all sorts of models can be superimposed upon that. 
and such as the sex addiction model, or, or there's, there, there are other models that are out there, but they all in some ways can live within these five questions. So that's Absolutely. about all I can you know, think to say about it at this moment. Well, I was going to ask you as we begin to wrap up, um, sure. how has the work been received? You've already heard that, you know, in our AppSats training, we now have mm-hmm. this in day one. We want our community to learn about this framework because it does destigmify and it does help them to identify with their clients how has how has this behavior impacted you? And I so I love the mm-hmm. fact that you give questions. I love the fact that you're looking at philosophies, you're looking at behaviors and you're letting mm-hmm. the professionals and the clients make that choice. Have have you has it been well received? Have you had any opposition? How Thank you. Um, a, 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 a lovely question. I have not received any of what I would consider overt uh, objection because it'd be hard to hear what there could be actually an objective uh, objection to, other than as I think I said earlier on. There's sometimes if people haven't heard this full description as I'm giving, they 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 might shorthand their understanding to think that somehow this is a a, a way of looking at sexual behavior that is against any other formulation like, like sex addiction. And I'm very clear, this is, this is very compatible with sex addiction as one of, and I think this will happen, in, it's possible, I think, as the years go on, we will come to appreciate that there are many more nuanced versions of sexual addictions with S's, and that perhaps these different five categories, as they, as they appear in different constellations with different people, will suggest maybe different treatment tracks, different, uh, different protocols that we might want to use um, you know, just you know, on, on, on that basis. So back to the question about the, the impact so far, it's been a, a small little ripple in the lake, and we don't really know always how far those ripples go out. It was published in the, 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 the trade journal, which is not uh, uh, you know, picked up on the, on the street corner, so it's been a, a fairly narrow uh, target that's come to – understand about this framework you know that's why reason uh, the excuse me podcast opportunities like this podcast are so helpful um i have been very um it's been very affirming that that sash the society for the advancement of sexual health they have their own training it doesn't go against the the csat training it's a much more um uh, basic uh, uh for for what i would call generalists as opposed to the csat training which is a specialization um, there are, I think, our, our whole country needs many more generalists, people who may not do just work with a person's sexual behavior, but they're in mental health centers and they're in public health centers. They're the frontline people of determining what behavior is problematic and what's not. So I want this framework to go into that population so that that clients can then be recommended to CSATs or other more specialized work. So all of that to say that SASH has this advanced training in problematic sexual behavior. That's a mouthful, right? The ATPSB. I have to spell it out in my head. And they have used this framework uh, also as the, as the sort of the basic foundational understanding of how to go about uh, helping uh, general uh, healthcare practitioners come to, to to get a grip on this whole complex field in a way that's fairly, um, you know, fairly accessible. So, 
in the industry wide, that's that's been very uh, affirming that both AppSats and Sash have have taken to this. Personally, I will say that that it has helped my practice and the way that I treat clients uh, tremendously. And, and and one quick example that I that I love to give is that I run a lot of men's groups. I just uh, have, my practice is, is over half of my practice is devoted to, to 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 doing men's groups. And I don't have quote sex addiction groups, although I have groups with with men who identify as sex addicts in those groups. But you know what? They're in the same group with men who may not identify as sex addicts, who but who all have the same sexual health goals of living within their commitments, their promises, their values, their self-control, and their responsibility, as we've said. And what is so useful is that this, is, this allows addicts or self-proclaimed addicts and, and people who don't proclaim themselves to be addicts to be in the same room, to learn from each other, to realize they're not that different from each other, so it reduces a lot of stigma from the, the, the self-identified addicts who also find that the people who have not gone to 12-step programs are highly receptive to the concepts and the languages and the tools of recovery. So even people who are not uh, willing or, or maybe don't even have a basis for calling themselves addicts are getting tremendous help by, you know, by osmosis, by, 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 by being able to, to, to be in a room with people who are addicts, and they turn into brothers. And, and it doesn't matter what the labels are, and it doesn't matter um, really how people's sexual behavior is going to look. Um, um, once everybody's journey has gotten to where they want to be, with all of their differences, all the men in the room can support each other and can help each other live in a way that's, that all five of those questions can be asked to the positively. So it's been very affirming to see how, how well addicts and non-addicts uh, just join together just like hand in glove when they are given an opportunity and language to show how they're all looking for the same thing. And so whether somebody is doing this behavior because, because uh, they're, I used to say either, it's because, either because you're ignorant, you don't know any better, it's because you're ill, you have some other diagnosis, bipolar or something, or it's because you're addicted, or it's because you have entitlement or, you know, you have an integrity deficit. And as we – to close out, as we know, many people with addictions, almost everybody with an addiction is going to ha- take hits against their integrity. But to have a, a, a framework in which people can understand how that lack of integrity has colored all of the rest of their, their behavior, I've seen men take that and do really heroic Things once they've looked at themselves in that way, in a non-shaming, but 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 uh, uh, the scales fall fall from their eyes, and they see I don't have to be an addict. The way I'm living is not right. This is not the way that I can live with myself or with anyone else. And they help each other to get better. And 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 that is, to me, that is just that's 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 worth. It's, it's just it's indescribable the 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 value of seeing people's lights turn on like that, uh, without ever once having to to decide what they're going to call themselves. So, Oh, yeah. I absolutely agree with you, Bill. Thank you so much. Anybody who would like to know more about Bill, you can go to his website, www.billherring.com. And can they get a copy of your paper on uh, the framework for categorizing mm-hmm. chronically problematic sexual behavior? It is a mouthful, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. That's on. It's on my website. Um, I have a pretty extensive website that has been 
managed for about 25 years, so there's a lot of information on there. Just about everything I've written, at least there's some link to that there. And uh, the uh, the it's and if somebody just typed in Bill Herring problematic, it's probably going to come uh, to come up. The Taylor and Francis, which published the journal that appeared in, it's uh, it, it's it's free access. It, so they. Um, it's uh, it, it, there's no firewall that allows people to it allows people to be able to access the article very quickly just if they did a general search or if they go to my website they'll find it that way. Well, thanks again, Bill. We've got to wrap up, but you know you mm-hmm. you do go against the grain a lot of the time, and the good news is it always makes sense to me. So you just keep oh my goodness keep doing what you're doing. It's a wonderful thing for our community. Thank you. Thank you, Carol. I so appreciate you inviting me here. It's been an absolute pleasure. Love it. Thank you. Take care. All right. So we have to end. But as you can see, that's a man with a passion, and it's all about you. Well, as I say at the end of every show, now you've just heard me talk about self-compassion and what I can do to stay grounded and resourced. What I really need to know is that we have the ability to be true to ourselves. And, you know, I want you to fearlessly have the courage to be you. Make it a great week, and we'll see you next week for more Sex Help with Carol the Coach.